Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Chenny Wu, in for Stephania Cox. Here are today's top stories. The war in Ukraine could be expanding. Russian airstrikes hit military airports in western Ukraine for the first time. Ukraine says their alert systems were not working. President Biden today announced another action to cripple Russia's economy. The U.S. and allies are stripping Russia of its most favored nation trade status. Biden's also banning imports of other Russian products. Florida's just one step away from banning what the governor calls woke training for employees. The bills passed the Senate on its way to the governor's desk. China dominating the electric vehicle battery market, an important technology of the future. What are the concerns? Airbnb is working to provide housing for refugees fleeing the conflict in Ukraine. Some Hollywood stars are leading efforts to gather donations for the company. Russian airstrikes begin to widen in Ukraine. They hit two airfields in the western part of Ukraine for the first time. And Russian President Vladimir Putin meets with the Belarusian president. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. Russian airstrikes hit two military airfields in western Ukraine early Friday morning. The western part of the country hasn't seen much of the fighting since the war began. Local authorities say two Ukrainian servicemen were killed and six people were wounded at one of the airfields. I want to say that the alert system did not work at all. The alert system operated by the armed forces of Ukraine. The military civil administration and the military will find out why the alert system did not work. The Russian defense ministry confirms the attack, saying they've destroyed the two airfields. On the morning of March 11th, high-precision long-range weapons attacked Ukraine's military infrastructure. Military airfields in Lutsk and Ivano-Frankivsk were put out of action. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, says the Ukrainian government lost all communications with the Chernobyl nuclear power plant on Thursday. This means the Ukraine operator cannot provide IAEA with updated information about the site. IAEA says they are working with both Ukraine and Russia to make sure Ukraine's nuclear plants are safe during the war. At the moment, we are trying to de-escalate the danger of a nuclear accident uh, in or around uh, the 15 nuclear reactors, 15 nuclear reactors providing more than half of the energy that uh, Ukraine needs to uh, operate, to, uh, to have a normal life. So the stakes are enormously high and we are trying to uh, get a result very, very soon. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says their military has reached a strategic turning point, but didn't elaborate on it. It's impossible to say how many days we still need to free our land, but it is possible to say that we will do it, because we strive for that, because we have reached a strategic turning point. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin hosted Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko at the Kremlin on Friday. They discussed the latest developments around Ukraine and the sanctions against them. I will certainly update you on Ukrainian developments and, above all, the progress of the negotiations, which are now being held almost on a daily basis. There are certain positive shifts there, as our negotiators have reported to me. On the same day, leaders of the European Union met at a summit in France. They proposed to boost the EU's military assistance to Ukraine by $550 million. 
The United Nations says over 2.5 million Ukrainians have fled their country as of Friday. Allison Lee, NTD News. As more Ukrainian refugees head to the Polish border, volunteers are there to help. NTD's Dan Skorbak was on the border and spoke to a pregnant woman who was able to escape. We are standing in Poland, one mile away from the Ukrainian border. About 100 miles east this way, Russia bombed another airport. The aerial strikes are forcing more and more people to leave their home and loved ones behind, like Nikita and Nastya Pisarenka. Their father stayed behind to defend his country, but wanted her to leave because Nastya is five months pregnant. My dad is defending the country with the civilian army. He volunteered. The whole city went. They won't take any more people. I would go with pleasure, but they didn't take me. I spoke to a volunteer. He said on this side of the border, people are smiling because they are safe now. But on the other side of the border, it's a different story. A week ago already, people were starving, lack of water. Already three days ago, they wrote in a local chat that the child died of dehydration. The corpses are simply buried in trenches. The people are very hungry and afraid to go out. Humanitarian aid does not reach them. It moves a little bit. They are fired at and they drive up again. He said he'll continue volunteering there as long as he can. Dan Skorbak, NTD News, Poland-Ukrainian border. Russia's economy took another big blow today. The U.S., European allies and G7 countries are stripping Russia of its most favored nation trade status. This will make it harder for Russia to trade with the West. President Biden made the announcement today and says the U.S. will stop importing other products from Russia, too. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more from Washington, D.C. President Biden on Friday announced the latest action to isolate Russia from the global economy, revoking their most favored nation trade status. This will make it harder for Russia to do business with the U.S. And doing it in unison with other nations to make up half of the global economy will be another crushing blow to the Russian economy. It's already suffering very badly from our sanctions. Congress still has to approve it, but lawmakers from both sides of the aisle have already signaled their support. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she's bringing this to the floor for a vote next week. This move will hurt Russia's economy, but the U.S. taking this action is mainly symbolic. And that's because President Biden earlier this week already banned Russian imports of oil, which makes up about 60 percent of what we import from Russia. But stripping them of this preferred trade status isn't the only action that the White House is taking today. Biden also is banning imports on other Russian products like seafood, vodka and diamonds. President Biden today saying, Putin must pay the price. And we're going to continue to squeeze Putin. The G7 will seek to deny Russia the ability to borrow from leading multinational institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Biden assured that these latest steps are not the last ones. All of the previous sanctions waged against Russia has shocked the Russian economy. The ruble has lost 76% of its value against the U.S. dollar over the past month. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. During a discussion held by the Atlantic Council think tank today, a retired general gave his assessment of the Russia-Ukraine war. He believes the Russian military has overestimated its own strength and capability. NTD's Jason Perry has a story. And I'll tell you this, they're not going to get in Kiev. Retired Army Lieutenant General Ben Hodges said some of the tactical maneuvers performed by the Russian military could have been performed better by a U.S. Army lieutenant on the first day of basic training. 
The general was referring to the Russian convoy. He said from a force protection standpoint, the Russians should have never had that many vehicles on one road because it's an easy target. He said the same was true when over a dozen Russian tanks, which were also driving very closely together, got attacked by Ukrainian forces. It's human nature for soldiers to want to get close together when they're scared. And I'm sorry, uh, when they're when they're scared. Uh, and that's why you have to have sergeants that are constantly pushing people apart, making them spread out. He also described another recent Ukrainian operation, which he said took courage and creativity. Two small Ukrainian uh, patrol boats, small ships, went out there and it got the attention of this Russian patrol boat. And then they ran off. And just like Custer chasing two Indians on horseback, the, the Russian Navy ship started chasing these two um, small Ukrainian vessels right into a trap where the Ukrainians had prepared artillery. And so the artillery um, punched a bunch of holes in that Russian uh, vessel. It caught on fire, and two days later, it sank. He also said he worked with the Ukrainian military in 2015, and they have learned to use a decentralized command, which is harder for the enemy to destroy. Ukrainians have evolved over the last eight years into a much more decentralized method of command and control, which most Western armies, the U.S., the Brits, uh, would recognize immediately. You don't have one guy sitting in a bunker with phones and radios giving orders to all the different fights. Instead, it's captains, majors, colonels, mayors that are directing the fighting everywhere. The Russians don't have that either. Hodges explained that the root cause of the Russians overestimating their own military strength and capability was decades-long corruption and false reporting in the Ministry of Defense. He said Russia will feel the effect of sanctions before they make any significant advance in Ukraine. Jason Perry, NTD News. Today, the United States accused Russia of spreading disinformation as part of a possible false flag operation, saying it's Russia's attempt to justify using chemical biological weapons against Ukraine. The United Nations on Friday said it was not aware of any biological weapons program in Ukraine. The U.S. and its allies voiced concerns that Russia was spreading the unproven claim in order to launch its own biological or chemical attacks. Russia called the meeting of the 15-member U.N. Security Council to reassert the accusation that Ukraine ran biological warfare laboratories with U.S. support. Russia asked the Security Council for today's meeting for the sole purpose of lying and spreading disinformation, and that is exactly what you have heard from the Russian PR this morning. The U.S. envoy to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said Washington is deeply concerned that Russia is accusing the West of the very violations that it plans to use itself. Last month, Secretary Blinken laid out with tragic accuracy what Russia was about to do. He specifically warned that Russia would manufacture a pretext for attack and even cautioned that Russia would fabricate allegations about chemical or biological weapons to justify its own violent attacks against the Ukrainian people. She adds that China has also been spreading disinformation in support of Russia's claims. Chinese state-run media featured headlines such as Russia reveals evidence of U.S.-funded bioprogram in Ukraine and China urges U.S. to disclose more details about biolabs in Ukraine. I will say this once. Ukraine does not have a biological weapons program. 
There are no Ukrainian biological weapons laboratories supported by the United States, not near Russia's border or anywhere. UN Security Council members rejected Russia's assertions as a lie and utter nonsense. They used the session to amplify accusations that Russia has deliberately targeted and killed hundreds of civilians in its invasion. Some companies holding trainings or courses on anti-racism. So what does that look like? In some cases, people are told they're privileged or oppressed based on their race and that white people should be less white. But some of these trainings are on the verge of being banned in Florida. NTD's Miguel Moreno has a story. Now headed to the governor's desk is a bill that would outlaw some workplace trainings on anti-racism. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis had proposed it last year, dubbing it the Stop Woke Act. Specifically, it would give workers the ability to sue employers. That's if their mandatory trainings teach that people are inherently racist or oppressive because of their race. Or that virtues like merit, excellence, and hard work were created by a particular race to oppress others. Some entities such as Google and the Seattle government are accused of promoting similar beliefs through their training material. Before the bill was passed, Democrats said it was unnecessary. The expectation of training is to make people more aware of others, of other circumstances, to be a better manager, to be more understanding of each other, and frankly, to not discriminate against each other. We are expanding a cause of action to include a category of discrimination for basically, let's just say it, white people who don't feel good. The bill does a lot more. It also modifies the public school curriculum. Democratic Senator Aubrey Gibson claimed that the bill prohibits learning about slavery and the Ku Klux Klan. Looking at the text, we found that learning about slavery is required and there's no prohibition on learning about the Ku Klux Klan. Schools would be prohibited from encouraging the same race-based ideas banned in workplace trainings. My assurance and my intention in this is to improve the conversations in our classrooms, in our workplace, to provide those trainings, to provide those lessons without imposing responsibility on someone who did not commit the act. The governor is expected to sign the bill into law. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Critics are saying that the new Texas voting law prevented last week's primary election from running smoothly, particularly in Harris County, the largest county in Texas. They say the law created more hassles, resulting in low voter turnout. But an expert on voting behavior says the new law is not the problem. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. It's a new law that took effect this year. The Texas Senate Bill 1 voting law, also known as the Election Integrity Bill, went into effect during last week's primary election. For the first time, Texas voters had to provide additional identification information, including either a Social Security or driver's license number. Critics have said the new law makes voting harder and creates new hassles. They blame the law for low voter turnout in the primary election last week. In Harris County, 8,500 of 28,000 mail-in ballots were sent back before Election Day, roughly 30 percent. We've had to turn back and say, it's not going to work the way you've sent it to us. And there were other problems. 
Not only that, but whatever number you put on the ballot has to match up with what we have in your system. Isabel Longoria, elections administrator in Harris County, told Reuters in an interview that people didn't put identification information on the applications because it was too personal or they worried about identity theft. And in some cases, they couldn't see the small box in fine print under the envelope. So those mail-in ballots had to be rejected. According to some reports, a higher than usual number of mail-in ballots flagged for potential rejection was the biggest challenge for elections officials in Texas. There's been no evidence to date that voter ID laws um, have a suppressive effect on voter turnout. Robert Stein, a professor of political science at Rice University, has worked with Harris County elections administrators for about 30 years and conducted extensive research on voting and voting behavior. He says the challenges of the mail-in ballot requirements didn't affect voter turnout in Harris County. I don't believe even um, the changes in mail-in voting. If a voter wants to vote, they will find a way. And I think proof of that is what happened here in Texas um, with mail-in voting. Most of the people who had their mail ballots returned to them because of in, in applications, um, we're finding out, ended up voting in person either earlier on election day. According to Stein, 40% of people in Harris County whose mail-in ballots were rejected chose to vote in person. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Up next, the classical dance performance Shen Yun is back in the Big Apple with packed theaters. And audiences say it's a universal inspiration. And a professional pianist turned baker wows patrons with her cakes. Her buttercream creations are lifelike to the eye, and as delicate as works of art. All that and more here on NTD News. Shen Yun performed to a packed theater in the heart of New York City last night. New York City council members and state officials welcomed back the performers with letters and proclamations. Tremendous show. It was fabulous. It, it's a universal inspiration. I thought that it's somebody put a record or a CD and played it. I've been dealing with music for a very, very long time, a little bit over 40 years. And what I heard today was exceptional. So my hat's off to the maestro and the orchestra. New York-based Shenyun Performing Arts aims to bring back China's 5,000 years of culture to the modern stage through story-based dance and music. The storyline, the message, um, how it really hits you. Sam Gonzalez, Suffolk County legislator, welcomed back the performers with a proclamation and said Shenyun is more than just beautiful. It's a message of the heavens. It's a message about your beliefs. It's a message that regardless of what's out there, hold on, hold on to your, to your love, your faith, and um, everything will always resolve at the end. Assemblymember Phil Ramos says Shen Yun brings people together. The use of art to uh, put out a message of unity, uh, to educate, to bridge the gap uh, between many people, you know, it is, it, it's something that brings people together, and it was beautiful to see that happen here today in this show. I felt uplifted by it. Professor Richard Joel says Shen Yun brings greater values to the world. The values here clearly are about human dignity and about not being drawn down into the worst parts of society, but trying to elevate society, and that's visible in wonderful ways here. Shen Yun will continue to perform at Lincoln Center until March 20th. If you have not seen the show, you have to come and see the show.
NTD News, New York. A famous pianist in New York channeled her artistic flair for music into baking. During the pandemic, she made lifelike buttercream bouquets that rivaled works of art. Let's take a look. New York pianist Nava Perlman Frost began playing piano at the age of six. After 35 years of professional performances, she is moving on to a new career, baking cakes and decorating them with lifelike buttercream flowers. The idea for this was sort of born out of my longtime interest in making the cakes look good. It's been a while um, since not just baking, but decorating um, was something I was interested in. The 51-year-old is the daughter of renowned violinist Itzhak Perlman. Her piano career has taken her across the United States and onto the stages of Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center. I was an art history major in college. Um, I've always loved beautiful things to look at. The pandemic two years ago put her concerts on hold. She then began watching YouTube tutorials and started making cakes. She says she couldn't find a better way to pass the time. I didn't think I was going to actually end up selling anything. At the urging of friends and family, she posted photos of her sweet treats on Instagram. Her frosted flowers look like fresh bouquets of roses, peonies, and tulips. Or they mimic works of art like Vincent van Gogh's irises. In December 2020, she founded a company that bears her name. Some of her cakes are gluten and dairy free. Prices range from about $80 to $200. People have said to me in the beginning, they were like, you're undercharging. I'm like, it's cake. She says she enjoys the feeling of creating. Art is, is something that, whether it's through your ears or your eyes or your emotions, brings you to a different place and makes you sort of for a moment, even if it's a really small moment, go, oh, and sort of just jogs you. As life gradually returns to normal after the pandemic, Frost may not return to the stage, but she has found a magical connection between baking and music. I find that this is almost expressive in a similar way as, as music is. It's sort of something personal that is just coming from you. Um, and it's, it, feels, it feels similar. I don't... She will continue to amaze her patrons with her art of baking. As she says, people cherish special moments, even the smallest ones. In New York City, many people are facing much higher rents. NTD's Phil Zoe visits the Upper West Side in New York to find out more. Gas prices, food prices, housing prices, oh my, the cost of living is rising at the fastest pace since 1982. In New York City, finding a place to call home is getting hard. Rents have been going up even faster uh, than housing prices. So if you go in the residential neighborhoods, uh, which is the majority of the city, it's fairly crowded. Unfortunately for buyers, I'm still seeing home prices trade at rocket high numbers. I visited the Upper West Side in Manhattan and spoke to renter Gabby Freed. She was in the middle of packing when I arrived. With inflation at an all-time high and the fact that salaries haven't increased to meet that inflation, I unfortunately can't afford this apartment. That's because her lease renewal had an $800 increase. That's around a 40% hike from her current rent.
My lease is up at the end of the month. I'm moving in two weeks. Um, most of my stuff's gonna be moved into a storage unit and I'm moving into Brooklyn just for the time being. Gabby, like many New Yorkers, moved to Manhattan during the pandemic when prices were rock bottom. But the city is coming back to life and some rents are rebounding higher than before the pandemic. With inflation, how much is it gonna cost me to do everyday things like drive a car, buy groceries, even renovate the house? Hurwitz says being flexible about location is one way to go. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. March snow fell on the Texas border today, blanketing El Paso in snow. Residents woke up to flurries, slick roads, and some accumulation. Flurries continued during the day. The National Weather Service issued a winter weather advisory for the cities of Midland and Odessa this afternoon. A long line of cars made their way along highways that flashed warning signs that read, watch for snow or ice on roadways a message rarely seen in Texas. One of the strangest double standards in sports finally gone. Baseball's designated hitter rule is now unified, and more changes are coming for the 2022 season. NTD's Dave Martin has more. The designated hitter rule was originally adopted for the American League back in 1973 as a way to boost scoring and subsequently attendance with an offensive player permanently batting for the weak hitting pitcher. But the National League's rejection of it and the confusing double standard that followed has made it one of the most unique setups in sports. One game with two leagues playing under the same set of rules with one major exception. Of course, in 1973, baseball operated as two leagues in other ways. There were no games between the two leagues, save for the World Series and All-Star Games, and each league had their own set of season awards, like the MVP, as they still do today. But after baseball's 1994 strike that canceled the World Series, fans were angry. To help the sagging attendance that followed, interleague games were introduced. Yet this highlighted baseball's strange double standard even more. Predictably, the AL teams, which traditionally devoted a roster spot for a DH, held the upper hand in the interleague play. In 2020, the DH rule was used in both leagues for the pandemic-shortened season, but then dropped for the NL last season. With Thursday's agreement, though, pitchers hitting in either league looks like a thing of the past. Among other changes for 2022 are the abolishment of the short-lived seven-inning doubleheaders, as well as the automatic runner on second to start extra innings. Both were implemented for the last two years, and neither were popular with fans. Finally, baseball expanded the playoffs again for 2022, with now 12 teams involved in the postseason, three division winners and three wild-card spots in each league gone to the one-game wildcard sets. Instead, the division winners with the top two records in each league receive a bye to the division series, while the three wildcard entrants and the other division winners play best-of-three series with the higher seed hosting all three games. In addition, the transaction freeze from the lockout has lifted, meaning free agents like Carlos Correa, Freddie Freeman, and Chris Bryant should all have new homes soon. Dave Martin, NTD News. A close call for a deputy in Montana this week. Watch the left side of your screen. You can see a Gallatin County deputy speaking to people inside a car and a median on Interstate 90. Then a truck appears to lose control and goes into the median, hitting the car. The deputy manages to get out of the way and no one was hurt in the incident. The Gallatin County Sheriff's Office says the video should serve as a reminder to drivers to slow down and move over for officers. 220 law enforcement officers died in similar incidents between 2007 and 2021.
Coming up, Airbnb is working to provide housing for refugees fleeing the conflict in Ukraine. Some Hollywood stars are leading efforts to gather donations for the company. And large and small brewers alike may be facing price hikes on many of their supplies. But some California-based beer makers say they expect this year's demand to return to pre-pandemic levels. All that and more here on NTD News. Airbnb is working to provide free or low-priced temporary housing to Ukrainian refugees. The company is coordinating with multiple organizations, including Hollywood couple Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis. San Francisco-based house rental service Airbnb is working to aid people fleeing from Ukraine to provide housing, free short-term housing, to 100,000 refugees uh, who are fleeing Ukraine. And we felt that we had the responsibility to step up in this moment in the face of this massive humanitarian crisis. Fusco told NTD that her company is subsidizing renters to take in people fleeing the conflict. As of Friday, it is estimated that 2 million refugees have left Ukraine, most needing financial help and housing. Say if they need to uh, book a stay for one of their clients in Romania, they'll be able to find a stay that meets those needs um, in Romania and book uh, a stay for free uh, for the refugee and ensure that they have access to free housing. She says they're grateful for having the support of people from all over the world. 17,000 people in just the past week since we've launched this initiative have actually signed up to share their homes with refugees for free or at a discounted rate. Fusco thanks donators from around the world. $1.2 million in direct donations from a total of nearly 14,000 individual donors all around the world, just in just in 48 hours, essentially. And then certainly we're also so pleased to have the support of uh, Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher. Kunis and Kutcher are approaching their goal of $30 million. $3 million of that will be from their own pockets. Airbnb is also partnering with the International Organization for Migration to connect people in need of housing specifically in Romania, Poland, Moldova, Hungary, and Slovakia. Other celebrities, like Leonardo DiCaprio and Gigi Hadid, are also pledging to match dollar-for-dollar -dollar donations and to donate a portion of their earnings to Ukrainian refugees. Adelina Soltane, NTD News, California. A teacher and parent in Southern California explains how the homeless lifestyle is affecting children. She says it's the adult's responsibility to bring the streets back to normal. Homelessness is an ongoing issue that has gotten worse over time. But in certain places, it's gotten so bad that it's affecting the quality of life. So we go to the benches and there's a needle in the bench. And this is like where we bring our kids to eat lunch and there's a syringe needle on the bench. You can't go to the water fountain there because there's um, leeches in the water fountain. They fixed it so many times they've given up. Kai Lun, a parent and teacher in Santa Monica, told California insider Sia Makhorami that drugs are the main culprit for the change in the last five years. She said it's even hard to walk kids through a park. 
kids can't have sprinkler systems across Los Angeles, by the way, because of the showering and because of the defecating in the shower areas. So it's it's a constant struggle, whereas these are things that's supposed to be childhood memories and, and spaces that are designed for kids to be that we can no longer utilize. Lund says kids living next to a homeless encampment are traumatized because everything they hear outside, they can hear in the home. They don't get a break from it. Her own kids have asked to move elsewhere. Two men told us that he was watching our daughter. This is right outside of our house. And um, then came in our gate minutes later. And my husband's like, you know, if you come in our gate, I'm going to shoot you. And it's so that fear is very real and it's very valid. She said she hears swearing, cars being vandalized, verbal attacks, which scares the young and old. I had a sense of that fear that, oh my God, like by doing this, by me walking up my front door every day, when I leave, they know when I'm leaving my children at home alone because it's COVID and I have to get groceries or, you know, whatever the case may be. Or when you buy groceries, it's the strangest things start to happen to you when you have someone watching you every day. Lun is an advocate for people who need help getting mental health. She hopes to bring more awareness and speak up for the people who are most vulnerable, children and seniors. To watch the full program, find California Insider on YouTube or Epic TV on the Epic Times website. California brewers, large and small, may be facing price hikes on their beer. Here's a look at what's leading to potentially higher prices. California is home to more craft breweries than any other state. The price of many ingredients in the brewing supply chain are up, and transportation shortages are leading to higher expected beer prices. The cost of making brew has jumped as the industry struggles to get aluminum cans, cardboard, malted barley, and trucking and shipping services during the worldwide supply chain crisis. Bart Watson, chief economist at the Brewers Association, a community of craft brewers, said, This will put pressure on breweries who face a difficult choice, have their margins eroded by price increases or raise prices, which risks seeing consumers look for alternatives. Aluminum prices have gone up around 40% since last January, and barley now costs a dollar more for a bushel. Continued strain on the industry is likely to lead to higher prices at the pub, industry experts say. Additionally, the Russia-Ukraine conflict has led to an upset in barley output. The two countries export one-third of the world's barley. Chuck Skypeck, the Technical Brewing Projects Director for Brewers Association, said brewers have been hit kind of particularly hard. He said that despite prices, he expects sales to go back to pre-pandemic levels. California is the world's top almond producer, but shipping delays and port backlogs continue to disrupt exports. The state is struggling to ship out its almond supply to international markets. Almonds are a billion-dollar crop in Fresno County. It's California's top agricultural export and sixth among all goods exported from the state. But much of last year's crop set for export still sits in warehouses awaiting transport as ships continue to leave port without them. Almond exporter David Fippen says right now, shipping companies can make more money by returning overseas empty and skipping the time it takes to load U.S. goods. Fippen told Your Central Valley, the real challenge, what keeps me awake at night, is our buildings are plumb full from the 2021 harvest, and we rely on shipping that product out of the buildings and emptying those 4 by 4 by 4 wooden bins so that we can start shelling and storing the 2022 crop, which usually starts for us in about the middle of August. 
California produces about 80% of the world's almonds and 100% of the U.S. commercial supply. According to reports by Blue Diamond Almonds, overseas exports are down by 20 to 27% compared to last year. On the flip side, U.S. domestic shipments remain strong. Shipments for January totaled 66 million pounds, compared to the 59 million pounds last year, a 13% increase for the month. California's lingering drought conditions have also put a strain on the state's almond supply. Coming up, five Chinese companies may get delisted from the U.S. stock market, and it could be just the beginning. And demonstrators in London are calling for more transparency about the ownership of real estate in the UK. An anti-corruption organization reveals that billions of pounds worth of UK property have been bought with corrupt funds. A Chinese food service company called Yum China is in the hot seat. It's known for owning Chinese branches of several popular American fast food restaurants, but may soon get delisted from the New York Stock Exchange. Here's NTD's Tiffany Meyer with China in Focus for more details. Five Chinese companies may soon have to delist from the New York Stock Exchange. One of them is Yum China. The restaurant company is known for owning fast food kitchens inside China, including a few names a little more familiar to Americans, like KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut. Yum China controls these chains' China-based restaurants, but Yum China and four more Chinese companies are facing a major problem. They are caught in a new auditing dispute between Beijing and Washington. The issue sent their shares tumbling on Friday. Yum China's Hong Kong-listed shares fell as much as 12% on Friday, and about 15% in New York. America's top regulator, the Securities and Exchange Commission, is demanding complete access to the books of all companies listed in the U.S. But historically, Beijing has always barred foreign inspection of Chinese companies, citing security concerns. The standoff puts hundreds of billions of dollars of U.S. investment at stake. In December, the U.S. announced that over 270 companies may not meet the disclosure requirement. Officials didn't disclose names at the time, but named five of them this week, including Yum China. Looking at the other four Chinese companies in the spotlight, two come from the biotech industry, Beijing and Xilab. One is a drug maker called Hachmed China. And one manufactures semiconductors or microchips, called ACM Research. The Securities and Exchange Commission has given these companies until March 29th to submit evidence that disputes the claim against them. China's securities regulator responded on Friday that it was confident China would reach an agreement with its U.S. counterparts to solve the dispute. As of May 2021, about 250 Chinese companies were listed on American exchanges, with a total market value of 2.1 trillion dollars. Electric vehicle batteries will be among the most important technologies of the future, according to a clean energy expert. But a recent report says most EVs will be built with Chinese batteries. Why? NTD's Don Ma has the details. Electric vehicle batteries are typically lithium-ion batteries, and with increasing demand for electric vehicles, the World Bank projects lithium production would need to ramp up by nearly 500 percent by 2050 just to meet the demand. So then, it's important to ask which country dominates the global lithium battery supply chain right now. The answer is China.
they have 60% of lithium, global lithium processing market. China's mining and battery companies acquired 7 million tons of lithium in reserves and resources in 2021. This is nearly equivalent to the amount of lithium acquired by all other companies combined in 2020. So what are the implications of this? Stefan Koster points out that 40% of the price of an electric vehicle comes from the lithium battery systems. So China could essentially have control over the broader electric vehicle market. Uh, China definitely has an interest in, in dominating the the both the car, the electric vehicle market itself, and then also the battery production stage. And China's certainly seeing the geopolitical uh, advantage of having that processing within within the their country. And what could be some of the geopolitical advantages? Manufacturers of electric vehicles who want to penetrate the China market will have to deal with China, and will have to deal with China's rules and regulations, even if they're vehemently against them or don't believe that they're you know, really following free market dynamics, free market economics. But for everyday Americans, what are the concerns for China being a dominant player in this area? The president of lithium battery manufacturer OneCharge tells us his concerns. We might be uh, either priced out because the price for the lithium ion cells are going to go too high, uh, or we're going to have trouble just uh, securing the supply. Tim Carey-Mob raises some concerns that China's dominance in the lithium-ion battery market could have implications during periods of high geopolitical tension. China could potentially withhold technology from going to the U.S. And small American businesses that generate jobs and value for the U.S. market might be caught in the crossfire of geopolitical conflict. Don Ma, NTD News. There are renewed concerns about corrupt money in the London property market following the invasion of Ukraine. According to Transparency International, at least £6.7 billion worth of UK property has been bought with corrupt funds. Their research identifies £1.5 billion of this money linked to Russians accused of corruption or with ties to the Kremlin. NTD's Jane Worrell met with demonstrators in Kensington who are calling for more transparency. Reason why we haven't passed that. Demonstrators came together in the borough of Kensington and Chelsea to put a spotlight on dirty money flowing around the London property market. They symbolically had money coming out of a washing machine. Joe Powell launched the campaign this week. Of course, we're not, we're not pretending that overnight this campaign is going to be able to, to help in terms of where the Ukrainian people are suffering right now. Um, but in the long run, I think if we can put an end to the dirty money coming into places like London, um, then we will increase accountability uh, in countries where democracy activists and anti-corruption activists and journalists are pushing their elites um, to be more open and democratic. And if they're able to siphon off money from those countries and hide it in places like Thornwood Gardens, then that makes their job much harder. They chose to meet at this spot because the ruling family of Azerbaijan owns some properties at Thornwood Gardens, and there are properties owned by Russian oligarchs nearby. They're concerned the money used to buy these properties in London come from corruption, embezzlement or crimes like drug trafficking or people trafficking. Many properties in London are owned by shell companies, making it hard to trace back the original owner. Now there are renewed concerns over who actually owns these properties. The ownership of many of these properties is hidden by anonymous companies where there's no public information on who the real owners of those companies are. When these companies buy the property, they just put the name of the company on the land registry, not the name of the true owner. 
We've been able to identify so much property because largely of data leaks uh, like the Pandora Papers, like the Panama Papers, data leaks, and then matching that information up with other open source information such as land registry or companies' house data or reports in the press you know, by investigative journalists and bringing that all together. It comes as politicians rush the economic crime bill through Parliament, which includes a register that would require overseas owners of UK property to verify their identities. The economic crime bill that is going through Parliament right now is landmark legislation. It's a great step forwards. There is more to do. We want the government to make sure that information submitted to Companies House is verified and checked. We also want the government to make sure there is an adequate deterrent to those professionals in the private sector that turn a blind eye to their clients' wealth when that is linked to suspicious funds. Transparency International say around 6,000 properties in Kensington and Chelsea are registered in the name of anonymously owned companies. It's thought many belong to Russian oligarchs. The UK continues to sanction Russian officials, with the UK Foreign Secretary earlier sanctioning 386 members of the lower house of the Russian parliament. Jane Warrell, NTD News, London. It's easy to feel discouraged when life gets tough and some aren't able to look beyond their situation. One woman in Chicago is sharing her story of living with lifelong adversities but refusing to bow down to them. Let's take a look. Living with a health condition isn't easy. Sometimes those illnesses impair daily life. Chicago resident Nina Salem is one of those with a lifelong disability and other medical conditions. And as if coping with her health wasn't enough, she also owns a small business. Running it is no small feat. I grew up with autism. Um, I also have ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, so like computers, paperwork, things like that. Definitely not my strong suit. Salem also has other medical issues. She's been blind in her right eye for years, suffered a brain tumor as a child, and battled epilepsy, plus a rare genetic disorder that causes other illnesses. Keeping up her physical and mental health presents daily challenges. I struggle really hard with reading um, and comprehension. Um, I sometimes um, struggle, like paperwork is really challenging for me. The social media and the emails and stuff, it can get very overwhelming. Luckily, Salem found her sanctuary early on. Everything in nature, rocks, insects, animals, and wind proved healing for her. You couldn't take me anywhere without me filling my pockets with some kind of something. And my collection started to amass pretty quickly. At the age of 13, Salem learned a new skill, taxidermy, the art of preserving an animal's body via mounting or stuffing for display or study. The meticulous work of insect taxidermy became a safe haven for her, something she came to call her personal asylum. Over the years, she's bought and curated 24,000 specimens. And in 2018, Salem decided to commercialize her passion and talents. But just two years later, the pandemic hit. I was capable of making profits um, pre-COVID as a business. COVID hit made it really challenging for me. As a 1099, I was not employed. When it rains, it pours. While jobless, she also endured a challenging breakup in a domestic violence situation. She said she was emotionally and financially drained. But Salem refused to give in to that misfortune. Instead, she soldiered on. It's not necessarily a deficit unless you make it a deficit. 
As the pandemic eases, her business is now recovering and growing again. With that growth, she's ready to take her talents to the next level. Salem is now getting ready to showcase what she calls her asylum of nature to the public. Her work will debut in her new museum opening starting this April. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Chenny Wu.